Hello, and welcome to The Safe Space. This is your host, Denise Rojas. And I'm your co-host, Rachel Johnson. All right. Sorry, I meant co-host, not host. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same thing. Okay. Um, So today, I think we're going to start by talking... I mean, like, can we just talk about what's happening and just acknowledge how hard it is right now to be on any form of, like, news outlet, social media, and not be flooded with traumatic images. And yeah. how that is, that takes away a lot for all of us, I think. Yeah. No, it's a lot. It's a lot happening in the world. A lot happening in the world, especially here in the United States and, like, the course of not even two weeks, I think we've had a lot of shootings happening mm-hmm. and um, definitely very overwhelming opening up Instagram and just seeing it. Because I think really what it is, is like we're all on different grief levels. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think wherever, whatever level they might be on you is where you see yeah. those posts coming in. But there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration, mm-hmm. a lot of sadness. Um, a lot of disbelief, obviously. And I think it's important to notice, too, that there's a lot of people that don't know how to move through this grieving process anymore because it's happening so often and mm-hmm. so much that you become almost numb to it. Yeah. And then it's you almost forget that this is a traumatic thing that you're sharing and posting and you don't ever know who you're going to affect, right? Mm-hmm. Some people, I know I personally have chosen to try to stay as far mm-hmm. <laughs> away from it as possible because it's just a lot. Um and there are people that are, like, right in the thick of it. They want to share it and talk about it and have all the things to say. <laughs> um, but it's just be careful, right? Remember yeah. to take care of yourself and take a break if that's what you need. Yeah. Um, I know I know. for myself I had to find a balance with mm-hmm. um, everything happening. I had to, like, pull myself away and, like, give myself breaks. Um, but honestly, like, a lot of the time I was thinking about Emmett Till's mom and just how she when her you know when the tragedy with her son or when he was murdered when he was murdered and how she used this this moment of grief to pivot the way that the community was handling things right Mm -hmm. and so I think from there you see a lot of action and so for myself it was like that like I had to use this moment to pivot okay Mm -hmm. what am I gonna do what is there to do? You yeah. know, there's a lot of, like, helplessness, right? Like, yes. ah, what, what can I do? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, it's just a lot in general with watching people feel helpless, feeling mm-hmm. helpless yourself, and not knowing, like, how to be helpful, right? Yeah. And having to figure out what does that look like for me to stand up and take a position on this? How can I turn this into something positive and not just be screaming into the void, right? Yeah. Because that's what it yeah. feels like a lot of time is you're just sharing your opinions with people who maybe don't care yeah. or don't know how to respond to it. And it's mostly just because you have all of this passion and it has nowhere to go. Yes, exactly. And so that's that's kind of where I was at, where it was like, I'm feeling grief. I'm feeling all of these feelings, but now I don't know where to go. What do I do with it? And so then it was, okay, like I have to do something, right? Mm-hmm. There's that action phase. So going back to Emmett Till's mom, she used her pain to to make it into a movement and so Mm -hmm. I was like okay what can I do to start something you know what's a conversation I can start what's a 
a person I can reach out to or something, mm-hmm. you know. And so I thought for here in Nevada, it would be great if we could do like a gun buyback program, which is right. not, it's not the answer, but it's right. a start, you know. It's an option. It's right? an option. Yeah. yeah. I think too, um, oh my God, I just lost what I was going to say. <laughs> but I do think that it's important to remember to rest, right? So knowing like when to take action and when to step back and just take a minute, right? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite um, therapists online is Soka Ray, and she was posting recently about how it's really important to remember to rest, right? To be a revolutionary, it requires rest. You have to take care of yourself because if you're not doing that, you're not going to come up with solutions that make sense. You're not going to be able to have the energy to fight back and be the advocate, right, that you feel like we need. Um, so it is important. And I think as social workers, we take on a bigger burden <laughs> sometimes than we mean yes. to. Um, and we feel very responsible for fighting for this change, Girl, um, especially yes. as melanated social workers, right? Um, yeah. You feel responsible for, like, your community and your community's mm-hmm. safety. And so wanting to remove that helplessness and turn it into like solutions and mm-hmm. actions that you can take to protect your community and the people around you. I mean, that's, I think that's normal, but I think it can drain us very quickly and yeah. I think it leads to a lot of burnout. Yeah. And I was talking with you precisely about that, right? Was that we have to, we as mental health providers end up pushing our own personal emotions aside so that we can continue to, you know, work with, with the individuals that we work with. And, and that's difficult. That's difficult to compartmentalize our own selves, our own grief that we're experiencing in that moment Mm -hmm. to come in and be like, okay, what's going on? And I mean, personally, I was hoping that somebody would want to talk about it so that I could also (laughs) get into it, but it's like, okay, it didn't get brought up. That's okay. I just, I have to, you know, find that balance, right? Find that, uh, whatever that is, that rest, um, that reset, that step away. And we are fortunate that we get to step away from it, you know, mm-hmm. unlike the parents who are experiencing it. Um, and so it is, that's a difficult thing too, is that feeling of guilt of like, you know, if I'm stepping away from it, like they don't get to step away from it. I have mm-hmm. to do more. Yeah. Um, but in order for us to be able to continue to run the race, we yeah. do. We need it to endurance. And yeah. to have endurance, we need to pace ourselves for sure. I think that guilt you touched on is really important because I think a lot of people struggle mm-hmm. with that guilt of feeling like I'm not doing enough. And, of course, I'm going to pivot mm-hmm. our conversation a little bit. I think that's some of the underlying issues of feeling like you're not enough, right? Is the guilt of like, I could be doing more, I should be doing more, I have this education, I know the things, like, yeah. I need to be doing more, and then it becomes I'm not doing enough, and even though I'm surviving and stepping away, I'm not doing enough because nobody else can, yeah. and because I'm not there for the people that can't, then I need to step up, and then it leads to this, like, cycle of guilt and shame, and then you feel like you don't deserve the things that you have because you're not doing enough to keep them, and so I think that some of that can be rooted in that imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. Where you start to feel like, well, how did I get this degree? I'm not doing enough. I didn't really earn this. Like, I now have it. I have this license or whatever I'm doing. And what am I doing with it? How am I helping the world, right? This, like, yeah. burden that we place on ourselves to change the world. Um, I don't think it's realistic. I think we all want to do it, right? We mostly get into this work because we want to see change. Mm-hmm. And then the system works around us and mm-hmm. we are trying to operate within a system that doesn't work with us, right? It doesn't give us the tools we need to be as successful in making those changes because we do need support and 
having that support is really important. Otherwise, where are we going? Mm-hmm. Right? You're like, again, screaming into the void and nothing is happening. Yeah. So we've entered our topic of our <laughs> podcast today, which is imposter syndrome. And that is something that um, in our research, what we looked at is that a lot of minorities experience it. A lot of women experience it. Right. And kind of looking into why that was right. Like mm-hmm. why? Um, ultimately, what we found was these are spaces that were not created for us. But it took us a while to even get to that answer. Yes. <laughs> a lot of it was like. <laughs> These are people who may have experienced anxiety. Mm-hmm. And these are people who, um, you know, may have experienced a lot of pressure mm-hmm. to succeed from, you know, family members and stuff. And so it was like, okay, uh, I can kind of see it, but that can't be it. And it felt a lot like blaming the person, mm-hmm. right? It was a lot of like, oh, well, if you have this character yeah. trait, then this might happen. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, well, if you come from this background, mm-hmm. you're going to feel this way. And I think that's where I struggle, and I'm sure you struggle too, yes. with the idea of imposter syndrome, right? It's not really imposter syndrome because it's not that I don't belong or that I'm not good enough. It's that this space doesn't celebrate me and the differences and the wonderful things that I bring to the table, it questions me in yeah. every turn, everything I suggest, everything I say. And it's like, well, how do you know? What do you know? And it's the little things, right? I think the article that really stuck with me, I don't know if I think it's the one yeah. I sent too. It's funny. We both found yeah. it. <laughs> we both found it and we're talking about it. Um, but it was talking about where imposter syndrome is just the little bits of breakdown that happen in the workforce, right? Where you get into these positions of power, you get a degree, you get a license, and you know what you're doing, right? You're really confident in it, you're so ready to start, and then you start, and it's these little underminings, this dismissiveness that happens in meetings or um, when you're talking to a supervisor, and it's like, well, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, maybe you should do it my way, right? Those little things that just kind of undermine your confidence and your ability to feel like you know what you're doing, right? And then you start to second guess yourself. And that doesn't come from you as a person. Right. Right? Because I could be outside. Uh, man, when I go out, you can't tell me nothing. Right? Like, <laughs> I'm amazing. And I don't know what you... What do you mean you don't like me? Yeah. Okay, you're, you're lost. But then in, in the workforce, you're like, oh my God, I have to get permission. I have to do this. Like, and you're just yeah. second guessing yourself. And that has nothing to do with who you are as a person. And everything to do with how we all interact with each other in the workforce. And specifically women and minority women. Mm-hmm. Right? Especially in a space that's not created for us. Yes. <laughs> Well, and that was one of the things that that article was talking about was we go into these spaces and we don't see anybody who looks like us in leadership positions. So that was like very specific. So in leadership positions, you don't see people who look like you. Um, And that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. That is a big deal because there are some cultural nuances that are different amongst minorities and, uh, you know, and just people in general right and so if you don't see somebody who looks like you that is going to be difficult to Mm -hmm. know how to interact or to really like you said question yourself start to doubt yourself where how how do I yeah how do I do this do I belong here do I know what I'm doing and Mm -hmm. it's not you it's the space that you're in (laughs) and then it's hard too I think because in some of those spaces there becomes this like competitive edge that they put right so if it's like a office of 50 people and there's only two black women in the whole office there becomes like well who's who's gonna make it right like well who's better and mm-hmm. that's a terrible way to be i know um 
a therapist that I work very closely with and I respect a lot, she told me she is never going to, you know, participate in that. She's like, every time I see anyone, I don't care if you're a minority, not, I don't care. You're not my competition. Mm -hmm. Like, hi, do you need anything? How can I help you? And so then it's like almost like the extreme opposite, (laughs) right? Of like, there's not a competition, but I'm always going to be helpful. And so then that leads to burnout too, right? So then you're like, oh my God, I'm doing too much and I don't know how to pull back and just say no and set boundaries. And so then there's this spectrum of not enough that happens because I don't, I really struggle with imposter syndrome. Like I said, I struggle so much to call it that because it's this comparison really is what it is, right? In our workplaces. And this idea of like, well, we have to stick together because if we don't, then one of us might not make it. Yeah. Right. And having that support is really important in these spaces, especially when, I mean, when you need support and it's not there, especially like you're saying, if there's nobody that looks like you in leadership positions who can guide you or give you even any kind of feedback, or if the feedback that you're getting is, I mean, anti-black, right? Like it's mm-hmm. anti-minority. So, like, well, you know that they need to be this way. And you're like, well, culturally, mm-hmm. this makes sense. And I'm going to go off of my client, right? Because that's who's important. That's the person sitting in front of me. My concern isn't always immediately, oh, I have to, I have to save my license. And I probably shouldn't say that out loud, right? But that's not my immediate concern. My immediate concern is how do I better the life of the person sitting in front of me? And if I feel that there's a willingness and an ability to learn, I'm going to address that first, right? So if you come in and I don't know about you, but I know the belt was a (laughs) cultural thing for me, um, the belt paddle like there was all kinds of ways you were punished right mm-hmm. and like could you imagine having a client come in your office now and saying oh i spanked my two-year-old with a belt you're like oh cps cps <laughs> and you're like wait a second hold on why do we do that like let's yeah. let's be curious first like why are we doing that oh because my parents spanked me right okay well, let's talk about what you remember about that right like right. let's learn how that's not okay i think a lot of times people especially mental health providers <laughs> yes panic because we're like oh we're mandated reporters we have to tell every single thing all the time yeah and it's like no we have to tell if there's an immediate danger right if there's not a willingness to change or learn so if you have a parent sitting in front of you going i don't know why discipline's not working well what are you doing well i'm hitting them with a the belt why do you think that's not working <laughs> right well, let's talk about it you're here you're asking questions yeah that's important you didn't come here because somebody forced you you're here to say my my child is struggling how can i help them if you come to me and say that, and then I'm like, you did what with a belt? Yeah. We have to, I have to call CPS on you. Like me as a person, I'm never coming back. Please don't right. ever contact me. Lose my information. I never want to see you again. And now I just trust the system. Now I'm less likely to get help and actually help my child mm-hmm. because you've immediately disconnected from me. Whereas giving an opportunity to say, okay, how often does this happen? What's going on? Could completely change that outcome. Right. You could save that child a systemic trauma by placing mm-hmm. them in the system and you're building a better relationship with that parent. And we know attachment is the key yeah. to successful, resilient, happy children. And I think for anybody who really questions that, uh, that perspective, I want us to look at it like uh, depression and suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. right? So just because somebody is having suicidal <laughs> ideation, does not mean that they need to be hospitalized. Correct. It does not mean that they're, you know, that the intent is there. It doesn't mean that there's um, more than that, right? Mm-hmm. Suicidal ideation is very normal to happen for people who experience depression. 
Um, and so just as you would address that and maybe mm-hmm. safety plan and talk about, you know, what's happening that we're having those increased thoughts, like, but Denise, I didn't get that training. They're going to kill themselves. <laughs> I have to immediately right. call the police. What do I do? Right. That yeah. panic's real. That panic is very real. And then hello, high imposter syndrome yeah. and all that doubt. What am I doing? Right. And if someone comes into you with that suicidal ideation and you're like, okay, oh my God, and you get really panicky, then they're going to panic and then you're not going to resolve the issue. But if you stay calm and you go, you know what? Most Americans struggle with suicidality, right? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of us experience that, whether it's passive, whether we come up with a plan, whether we actually have an intent. Some people have, I'm almost positive, every person on this planet has at least one time in their life thought, what if I just wasn't here? Yeah. Would it be better for my family? Would it be better for whoever? We've had terrible breakups where you just want to die, right? Like we've had these severe emotions, and instead of panicking, if we sit with people, I promise you, you'll learn so much more about that person. Probably do a lot more good than sending them to the hospital. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, that comes with feeling competent. And can I sit with this? Yeah. Can I sit with you in this? Because <laughs> it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable. And I think sometimes that's our job is to hold the discomfort and make it comfortable so that it's safe to talk about. I remember having... Um... A situation come up where I where I did I thought I think we're gonna be okay I think my client is gonna be fine but I'm I'm not totally sure like I like I just needed somebody to validate me like I think we're gonna be okay right and um that was not the response that I got but I did end up get, getting validation from someone else Wait, but what was the response you got you definitely have to share <laughs> okay well it's I just didn't want to get too much into the client specific or whatever but the response that I got was, I would have hospitalized for less. And I think that's where we start to see the doubt, right? Like, that's exactly what we're talking about, yeah. though, right? Instead of instead of sitting with me as an intern, as a yeah. supervisor, and going, hmm, why didn't you feel I needed to be hospitalized? You're going, oh, I would have. And that's yeah. very, it's very condescending, yeah. right? It's very judgmental, very critical of your skills. Yeah. And so then now, I'm sure, you went into your next session, and if somebody said it again, you're like, well... Maybe I, sh- maybe I should hospitalize. Like you were right. quicker to hospitalize, right? The next time. And that all comes from just undermining that confidence that you had, right? Like you know your client yeah. the absolute best. They're your client. You build a relationship with them. So for somebody outside of that relationship to go, oh, I would have, I can't believe you didn't. Yeah. You're like, am I a bad therapist? Like, yeah. Am I doing this wrong? Hi. Undermining your confidence. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was a big thing. I I do remember that, and you're right. It's so to see the doubt in me, and so then you're absolutely correct. <laughs> in my next sessions, not just with this individual, but with um other clients, whenever they did share, I did immediately go to, is this uh is this a hospitalization? Do mm-hmm. I need to do that? But then also, myself and you have talked about this. <laughs> is like hospitalizations they are a beautiful place because when you do get hospitalized it absolutely does remove the triggers of your environment you're Mm -hmm. absolutely safe for that moment for that moment then you go back to your environment Mm -hmm. so hospitalization is not a long-term solution that's why i liken it to your example of um, trauma of entering the system is because of that it's you get hospitalized but then you get you 
go right back? What did you learn? And sometimes you go back to a worse situation, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes you get hospitalized and maybe before you get hospitalized, you have a job, you have all these things going on. And then you've been in the hospital for a week right? and now you don't have a job, right? Because that's a no call, no show. And so now you have to figure out how to pay this rent and you Mm -hmm. have to figure out how to get a new job. And now you're more depressed, right? So then it's like this cycle starts where if you don't have a support system to like step in and say, Hey, you know what? This is what's going on without obviously giving too many details. Mm -hmm. Please. Can they take a leave? Can you, what can we do? Right. If you don't have that support system, if it's just you and you're a single adult living in the world, you're screwed. So then did I actually help you or did I cause my harm? Right. And I think that's a really important question too, Mm -hmm. to take into consideration when you're thinking about, What's the next step for my client who's, I don't know, suicidal, homicidal, hearing voices? Like, what's the next step? Maybe it's a consultation. Maybe I refer you to a psychiatrist first. Maybe mm-hmm. they decide, like, hmm, let's, let's try this medication before we go to hospitalization. Is it severe enough that I have to disrupt your life? That I have to remove you from the supports you already have? Are you going to come back to me after? Right. How do I know you're going to continue treatment and it's not going to get worse? And I know that that's a risk, right? And we always want to err on the side of caution, but I think we also have to be looking at what's cautious, right? Like which side is the cautious side? Is it me continuing to talk to you and having you feel safe enough to tell me next time that you're feeling this way and how we can get out of it so we can safety plan? Or is it that you are so deep into it that that's not going to work? That's when we hospitalize, right? Like when I cannot get you out of it, right. that's when we should be hospitalizing. But I think supervisors the board school Mm -hmm. puts into our heads your license is on the line litigation yeah don't want to get sued and you're like (laughs) okay well i'm probably gonna get sued at least once in my career i'd rather it not be for a client who feels like i acted too quickly Mm -hmm. right um yeah i guess like but that is like there's both sides i see both sides of it right like i'd rather act too quickly and save a life Mm -hmm. than not act quick enough yeah so it's hard. But again, high doubt, <laughs> high self-doubt. Having safe places to talk that through is more helpful for both the client and the clinician than it is to have somebody tell you, well, I would have. Well, I don't know why you did that. It's not helpful. <laughs> and you're going you're gonna to create some serious um, negative side effects in that yeah. clinician which which i felt like i handled that situation really appropriately like we safety planned i contacted um some safety people right and had that conversation and you don't have to be the therapist just call nine one one. you know mm-hmm. that kind of a thing yep. and i thought okay cool i got a hold on it now let me relay what I've what I've done, and then when I did, it was that that was my response. Mm-hmm. I would have hospitalized for less, or I have hospitalized for less, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I think we're a new generation, though, Denise. Trauma. I think there's like a new generation of therapists out there that's more, um, more conscientious, right, mm-hmm. of the harm that we're doing by throwing people into hospitals. Yeah, right? like I think. There are more people that are like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm kind of leaning towards this harm reduction approach, right? Like, what can I do to help you still function in your life without completely disrupting and overhauling the things you are already stressed about? And I think a lot of those clinicians are kicking back on those Mm -hmm. clinicians exactly like, I would have hospitalized for less, right? Like, there's, there's a lot of kickback there. And we're starting... I would say the generation that I've seen, and maybe it's just, of course, my algorithm on social yeah. media. <laughs> There's a generation of social workers that are very client-centered, yeah. right? Very focused on what 
what does my client really need and what are they telling me they need, yeah. right? So like there's three things when we see a client sitting in front of us and I think this is where we start to doubt ourselves too. What they're telling us they want, what we're seeing that they want, and then what their behavior is showing us that they want, right? And so having to kind of take all three of those things into consideration to make decisions about hospitalizations and safety, that's a lot. And mm-hmm. if you don't have a place to go, oh my gosh, like I'm part of a group chat where I can be like, okay, I need help. <laughs> and you know, it's all, all of them, all the therapists are like, okay, this is what's happening. What can I do? Having places to brainstorm that nice. feel safe to bring that to makes us better clinicians. When we feel like we have to work on our own and we can't talk to people is when we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when we should start doubting ourselves, when we feel like we don't need support, right? When we feel like we don't have to consult or ask questions. That's when you should really feel like an imposter, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because this this work is hard. This work is hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so going back to to imposter syndrome and our own experiences of how we felt it, we talked a little bit about um, some some of that guidance, right? How that has has affected us. Um, is there something that you do for yourself to help you when those thoughts do come in? Um, I'm going to say the super cliche answer and I self care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have, like I said, I have a group chat that I talked to. So I have some really strong therapists that I respect a lot and I will kind of just voice it. I'm like, I don't think I should start private practice. Like, I don't think I'm good enough. And then kind of having this conversation about like, well, these are the trainings you've done and this is why do you feel like you, yeah. know, you can't do it? And so having that like place to kind of bounce that off of is amazing, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's very non-judgmental, which is super helpful because then it's not like, well, if you feel that way, why are you a therapist, right? Ooh. Like it never, I've yeah. never gotten that response. <laughs> thank God. I mean, I've I've maybe had that response to myself, right, yeah. in my head, like, well, if I feel this um this not um unconfident, like, should I even be seeing clients? Like, yeah. Am I doing harm? Like. But then you get clients, right, that are like, oh my God, like you are the best therapist I've had. I've been to like five mm-hmm. others, and like that reassures you that yeah. you're doing a good job. Um, yeah. So I think it's mostly that, like, kind of challenging, like, mm-hmm. cognitive distortions, right? Yes. <laughs> Throw some therapist lingo in there for you. Yeah. Challenging it with facts um, and seeking support. Those yeah. are the things I find most helpful when I start to doubt myself. Yeah. And I do the same. I have to tell myself, um, I'm here. Like, yeah. I made it, right? <laughs> I went to school. I did all the things. I passed my, my, um my exams I've Mm -hmm. done it right because there is like even when I passed my clinical exam it was like well did I (laughs) did Did I I maybe just guess (laughs) like did I not know did I get lucky (laughs) did I get lucky that I passed it on the first try did I really you know it just a lot of doubt but um yeah like a lot of self-talk you're right fighting some of that cognitive distortions of no I I do belong here Mm -hmm. I do belong here I've made it and there is that difficulty though that because we're like the like the one of our kind I don't know <laughs> how to say it like because yeah. we're you know I'm one of two Hispanic therapists at at mm-hmm. our at the place where I'm practicing at you know and so it is it's hard it's hard when you are like yeah there's not a leadership position that um or, you know, my supervisor is, doesn't look like me. She's a woman. She doesn't, she's not brown, you know. So mm-hmm. there is that self-doubt that just comes from that of just being the only one. Mm-hmm. That's hard. Yeah, I agree. And I think it does make you question, like you said, like, do I belong here? Because I think, now I'm looking back at it, I don't think any one of my supervisors 
we're not white, mm-hmm. right? And so having someone who doesn't look like you kind of supervising you, I know I got lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like one of my first agencies that the supervisor over my program was a black woman. Oh. And so I found myself going to her more um, mm-hmm. and trusting her judgment on who she felt was like a good person to consult with over my supervisor. Um, and I probably shouldn't say that out loud. If you're listening, Sandy, I didn't do that. It's a joke. Um, <laughs> LOL. <laughs> jokes. Um, but yeah. And so that's, and so I think that I learned the most in those situations. And it's funny cause you're like, I, I went to school, I did these things. And when I think of like getting here, school's not the thing I think of, right? Mm-hmm. Cause I felt like a lot of times I was like kind of challenging my teachers often and mm. asking about different perspectives that they didn't have. Um, I almost felt with like I didn't have any guidance like I felt like I was just kind of like floundering in school and then I got out and I was like oh no I'm still (laughs) floundering what do I do and um so yeah I I feel like now when I'm like okay you earned this license you did these trainings um and I'm thinking of the things I feel like I survived yeah internship right I don't feel like I grew or I learned a ton um, and I tell my consultation group this all the time, like I still have so much to learn because I wasn't able to focus on learning in my internship because I was so focused on belonging in the field. Oh. And so, yeah, I, I think that's why I don't feel like I, like I feel that way, right? Like yeah. I, I pass the test, I did these things. I'm like, well, I've now found a community that makes me feel like I'm not failure. <laughs> like I'm not, I belong yeah. here. You know, I belong here. Um, and I think that's important and it's hard a lot of times to find that, I mean, I went through five agencies mm-hmm. before I found a place that I really feel comfortable at. Um, and along the way, I just kind of picked up people. <laughs> like, I yeah. was like, oh, I, you and I, we get along and mm-hmm. you, you're super smart. I respect you. Like, let's, let's stay in contact, right? Um, and I think that's the way we practice, right? If we don't, then we really feel alone. Mm-hmm. Like you said, right? if you're one of two, I remember being like one of three. And then two of them leaving. And yeah. it's just me. Oh, and then me, you know. And so then it's it becomes really lonely and terrifying and you feel targeted. And it's really hard to feel like you belong there. No, it is. Oh, that's a lot of reflection. <laughs> I I like that you that you said that, like feeling like you were floundering. Um, not I didn't like that you were feeling like that. I just like that you said that because same Z's. Um, for sure. I think I just told you the other day, like I just found out something about depression that yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> I think we were just saying, right? Yeah. Like school didn't prepare us for no. that. You didn't tell me enough. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> I feel silly for not knowing that. And that is, you know, but then that's like, oh, okay. This is why the CEUs are a thing. Like we're supposed yes. to be teaching ourselves. So mm-hmm. like, what, what did I pay 30 grand for? <laughs> Girl. <laughs> yes. I feel it. That I- master's degree. <laughs> But I also wonder how much of that is just the differences in our identities, Yeah. right? Because I think I had colleagues that were like, oh, I read all the books. I had all the time. I read every single chapter. And I'm like, I maybe read half mm-hmm. of the chapters that were assigned to me because, um, I mean, I started, I was pregnant, and then I had an infant. Yes. Like, I just yes. didn't have the time. I'm working full time and yes. I'm trying to do a practicum. And it's like well, maybe, and I'm like, no, 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 we're getting this done, right? Mm -hmm. This is important to me, and I have the ability to ask questions, to take notes, to go, like, that's what these classes are for, right? If I'm doing the reading, I should be able, you should be able to reinforce what I'm reading, Mm -hmm. and if I'm not able to read it, I should be able to ask you questions and understand what I'm missing. Um, 
I don't feel like that was always the case. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think I think that's important to look at too, right? If mm-hmm. you have the time to sit and fully dedicate going to school, it's wonderful. You mm-hmm. learn a lot. But if you have anything else going on, and I think this is where it gets a little scary for me with higher education, you might not get ahead. Right? There, Yeah, there is a school here in town... <laughs> We won't name it, but um, they have a reputation of stating you should not be working mm-hmm. if you are going to be attending this program. And that's not realistic. Not at all. That's not realistic at all. Because one, if you're a single person mm-hmm. and you're not working, yep. you are automatically going to have to go into student loans. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you have some generational wealth, yeah. you know. Just sitting on just somewhere. Just sitting yeah. on there somewhere. <laughs> you got a grandparent that's saying, yeah. you to go to college. I don't yeah. know. Like, like, I don't know who does that, you yeah. know? And so we, we talked about that last time. Like, I was able to pay out of pocket, but I really had to sit with that and think about, I didn't. It was two wages, myself and my husband, because I was still mm-hmm. working full-time. I was a mom full-time. Yeah. And part of that time, I was in grad school. And it sucked because I felt like my whole life had been yeah. consumed by it, you right? No time for yourself. There was no time for me, you know, but... um. But that would like if I didn't have that support system, if I didn't have that second wage, you know, mm-hmm. to depend on, and I and we didn't have the luxury for me to not work, yeah, I had to keep on working. Mm-hmm. And so, if we're asking single people, if we're asking people who are in a relationship to say, Hey, you can't Maybe work, I got you. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and rent is uh, by the way, it's yeah. two grand for a one bedroom, yes. like, oh. Where is that real? Like, yes. oh, it's, just, it's a nightmare. <laughs> How did this happen? So it's not, it's not realistic. It's not These, feasible at all. No, it's not feasible. It's not, you know, and so then you're expected to do all of these readings and mm-hmm. to do all of these things. I remember somebody in my class, in one of my classes was working part time and like, she like really took it seriously. She was like, I'm only working part time. I'm doing all the readings and I'm thinking like must be nice <laughs> yes, yes i'm over here skimming looking at like yeah. the definition like, yeah find like the highlighted pieces like what seems most important yeah. what what answers the question yeah. that you're asking me to answer yeah i remember having i mean luckily i lived at home I think yeah we talked about that with my son and i remember having friends like that were just off like random days and they're like do you need me to watch him so you can go to class like oh my god yes and then like rushing to campus and rushing back so yeah. i have no time for te- um professor hours i can't go to your office and talk Mm -hmm. to you like i don't have the luxury of like like fully immersing myself Mm -hmm. in this experience because not only am i yes i'm living at home i'm contributing to those bills like i still have to pay i still have a child to provide for and that's a lot and i don't know i mean i don't know which person nowadays is like i am totally committed to school and i have no worries (laughs) or cares i can just go to school i don't know anybody that's like that right most people are graduating in a house payment of Mm -hmm. student loans right hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get an education yeah and then I think I think I'm gonna say I think sometimes that contributes to that self-doubt too like if I couldn't afford this on my own did I just get here on a fluke yeah now I gotta pay this back how am I gonna do that and be a good good at whatever degree I just got right like so there's that pressure too yeah. <laughs> Some of that. So I want to say like I've never failed any of my classes, just putting it out there. But Same. it does it Same. feels like that. Like as we're talking, it feels like 
Denise, you didn't even do all you're you're good. You didn't even do all the readings. Mm-hmm. Like, are you are you a quality therapist? <laughs> but now all I do is read, I feel yeah. like. Now that I don't have the pressure of like internship supervision hours and going to class, like I have more time to like I mean I just started my audiobooks, right? Like now I'm hey. trying to like listen and find time to read not just for work but for pleasure. Mm-hmm. So now you're trying to like kind of go back mm-hmm. <laughs> and relearn and I think Taking the trainings is super helpful, and I, as much as I hate them, I'm grateful for the CEUs. Mm -hmm. I just wish that they were more diverse, right? Because a lot of the things that I'm interested in are so new, because there is this new approach to social work and therapy in general that's happening, that you're, like, begging, like, can this, can this count? I think it should count. And then you have to defend why you think it should count and how it's helpful, and you're like, listen... This modality you're trying to teach me that this stuffy old white man in an office mm-hmm. made 45 years ago, it doesn't apply anymore. Like, yeah. the world has changed so much. Like, can we keep up with that? Like, isn't that yeah. part of what we should be doing? And if we're not, can we just acknowledge that that's also doing harm? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these modalities weren't studied on minority people or people yeah. living under severe stress all the time. Like... I think that as you're talking, now I'm really understanding why I choose the modalities that I do, which in our bio, we talked about <laughs> it, but my my go-to is humanistic approach and cognitive therapy, and they're super vague. They're very, <laughs> very. like, broad, right? And then even <laughs> in CBT, there's more, like, specific ones, which I'm like, too specific, too specific. Yes. But uh, you're right. I think I think what I've been doing is... I haven't found something that fits my clients, right? Mm-hmm. Who a lot of them look like me yeah. um, or are minorities. And so because they they don't fit the stereotypical white male, right? right. I'm using these really broad approaches yeah. because that's, that's what I find that work that I can use the best with them, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, you're right. We need more of these, more of these um, specific evidence based approaches that are for people of color, for minorities. And I think it's interesting too because now we're seeing people are more likely to engage. Right mm-hmm. back then they wouldn't because hello social workers yeah. we were coming to take your kids we were going to make sure your family was what yeah. we wanted it to be so there was a huge distrust of the profession yeah and now that people are starting to trust it more because hey it's starting to look like me the research hasn't caught up and so yeah i i and i think maybe that contributes a lot to minorities feeling imposter and i'm using air quotes imposter syndrome yeah. <laughs> because we're like okay what do my people need what would yeah. i need right like this works for us me sitting here having a casual conversation and figuring out, like, I'm not telling you, like, I'm not giving you anything new. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to force you to do homework. Like, sometimes I will. But it's not like, write this paper down and, like, it's none of that, right? <laughs> it's like, notice. Notice this. Yeah. And then you come back to the session and you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what you said to me last session, but this is what I saw. And I'm like, perfect. Like, you are doing this work. Yeah. It's your work. It's your life. And I think a lot of newer therapists have that approach, right? Like, I'm not here to tell you what to do or change you in any way yeah you are going to choose to change and i'm just going to help you along that journey Mm -hmm. whatever that looks like i might challenge you yeah i call you out that's my job yes not really your friend i know you sometimes we think you you think we are but i'm helping you grow that's the important part yeah and i think it's important that maybe this is part of why i'll speak to myself i think part of this is why i feel like i don't not good enough as a therapist 
because I don't have an agenda. Mm. I don't expect you to be a certain way or act or show up in any type of specific place thing, any of that, mm-hmm. because it's not about me. Right. And I think some of these approaches put a lot of pressure on our clients to be like, this is what we expect you to be. Yeah. And this is where you're at. How do we get you here? Yes. And I think sometimes it's not a matter of like, can I get you here? It's that I see you're here and you're telling me you want to be here. How can we get you as close to that as possible? Mm-hmm. Right. I don't get to decide if your life is working for you. That's that's what you decide. Yeah. And as you go through this process, and I know as I've gone through my own process, I'm like, everything's great, girl. I'm doing wonderful. My therapist is like, is it wonderful? And I'm like, no, it's not. Let me tell you why it's not, right? <laughs> and you have, like, have that little bit of call out, yeah. and it's and it's perfect, right? Because you're like, okay, yeah, you're right. Like, I'm saying that I want to be here. I'm pretending to be here. And really, I'm here, right? And so kind of creating that roadmap with mm-hmm. your client of like, what does it look like for you? Like, you're telling me, perfect. I say this all the time to my clients. You're telling me you want to work on communication. What does that look like? How would you know mm-hmm. that your communication has gotten better? And they're like, well, I don't know. Okay, so let's work on that. Let's start there. And then we can progress that goal where you want it to be. Because mm-hmm. if you don't know, and you're just giving me things, we could go anywhere. And mm-hmm. But then it becomes me who's defining what communication looks like for you. Yeah. That's not beneficial. That doesn't help you. Because my communication style might not work with yours. Yeah. <laughs> or in your environment. Exactly. So as as I'm just hearing you, I'm I'm reflecting a lot on how even in our institutions, right? Like in the <laughs> in college, like that wasn't made for us. No. It wasn't made for us. It wasn't made like it seems to be very antiquated still, like don't work. <laughs> you can't. You yeah. can't do that. So it, it was, yeah, it's like a road, it's a roadblock, right? There are all these things that are kind of lined up against you. And we somehow made it. You know, know. Like, yeah. did we skate through it? Like, did, did I just push it over yeah. and get by? Like, I don't know. <laughs> we somehow just got by, you mm-hmm. know, like we barely made it. Maybe, maybe that's the, the proper way to say it is like, we barely made well, it given all these, like we barely made it given all these things that were laid out against mm-hmm. us. Right. Like we feel like we barely made it, uh, because we weren't supposed to, mm-hmm. we weren't supposed to make it. It wasn't for us. It wasn't, um, it wasn't made for us to be included. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then we get into our internships and those weren't made for us. They weren't made to include us. So then then we already, maybe we already feel a little bit of doubt leaving our, our children home. Yeah. Like, other responsibilities to the side. Yeah. You already feel so much doubt as a parent, right? And then you start feeling doubt as a student, as a new graduate. Then you start feeling doubt as this mm-hmm. new intern. And it just fully evolves into quote unquote imposter syndrome. And it's not us. It's yeah. not us. I remember... When we were first looking at this topic, we said, how do you resolve it? How mm-hmm. do you solve it? And your um, your research was like, reframe. I'm like, um, yep. no. Nope. <laughs> uh, we're reframing it. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about how do we, how do you, um, as an, an environment, like if you are an agency or you're a supervisor, how do you reframe that from, well, you just feel inadequate yeah. to like, well, you're not technically, this space doesn't support you. Mm-hmm. So how can we make this space more supportive for you? Yeah. And a lot of people always are like, well, then you're just coddling and people are just getting by and you're not really helping them learn. But like you are, because if someone feels included and safe, mm-hmm. they're going to do a whole hell of a lot more work than they would do if they don't feel that way. 
Right. Because people who don't feel safe and included or even, like, respected are going to be looking for another job. Mm-hmm. Right? They're on the way out the door. The turnover rate's very high. If you're supporting them and you're helping them explore what that looks like for them, how to be the best versions of themselves for their clients, I bet they stay a lot longer. Mm-hmm. I bet you notice a lot less doubt in your clinicians. Mm-hmm. More confidence in their sessions. Right? And if you give them a safe space to consult and say, listen, I love that you gave me this new client. I have no clue what to do. Mm-hmm. And you go, I got some things I can send you. Let me help you. Mm-hmm. You might see a huge difference in A, the way your clients feel about your agency, the way your clinicians feel about your agency, and even in the types of referrals you get. right? Because then your clients are going to feel more relaxed. Your clinicians are going to be more productive since we yeah. live in capitalism. <laughs> right? And it's just going to turn, turn it around. It's a turn on its face, basically. And it's funny that you brought up like the spaces that were designed for us because you were saying that. And I was thinking cultural competence was a chapter in a book. Yeah. Right? Like we didn't sit. And I know that I will say, I think I almost got kicked out of class for this one. <laughs> um, I remember having like arguments back mm-hmm. and forth about like what does cultural competence mean and what does it look like? Yes. And then having this idea of like, oh, well, just because that's their culture, this is still the right way. And I'm like, that is the exact opposite of cultural competence like you saying that oh i get it no i totally get it and then expecting to put your expectations on somebody else is the opposite of cultural competence understanding and respecting culture for what it is is so important because then you can look at this family or this person or this client within the context of their own culture and then look at are there any um what is what i'm looking for any abnormalities there, mm-hmm. right? Because your culture might look different than mine. So when you say, oh, my grandma talked to me, I might go, is that a hallucination? What? What's mm-hmm. happening there? But then you're telling me for your whole life, your cultural beliefs or your family beliefs, is like we keep a chair in the living room for grandma. Because even though she's not here, she's still here. How do you differentiate that? You're not talking about it in school? Yeah. You're not telling me what that could look like. So then you're going into practice thinking, oh, these clients are hallucinating. Yeah. Psychosis. <laughs> yes. Get them in the hospital. Like, oh, no, there we go. It's like the circle, right? Yeah. It's just a lack of understanding. Yeah. And then I think it becomes dismissive for clients maybe who do experience psychosis and then want to integrate that into who they are as people, right? So some people have you know, hallucinations or like lucid dreams, whatever, the things that we find abnormal. And then they're like, but this changed now how I think about my relationships mm-hmm. or how I want to live my life. And you're like, well, if you're, if you're saying, right, if you're like, well, that was just a delusion and that's not real, then you're yeah. dismissing this whole experience of this client, this lived experience this client yeah. is telling you about. That's not culturally competent either. That's not client-centered. No. It then becomes, again, about the clinician and the clinician's expectations of the client. And then when you're the clinician that is working with that in that context and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. And then you hear a colleague go, I can't believe you told them that. You're like, dang it, did I mess up? And then here we are again with the self-doubt. It's hard. So moral of the story here is... (laughs) We need more training. (laughs) More Uh, competent training. Well, and it's... You know, one of the things that I read about cultural competence, (laughs) it's that... It's not just a, it's not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, just a, a, like a class. It's not, it's not a, a class. class. It's an it's ongoing a, learning yes. experience. <laughs> it's a lifestyle. Yes. It's a long, long term 
it, like you evolve, right? Mm-hmm. You you evolve to learn, you know what how how these cultures operate. It's mm-hmm. not just I took a cultural competence right. class and I'm and now I know culturally, everything. Yeah, I'm culturally confident now. <laughs> and it's not just on the clinician to reframe. Mm-hmm. The establishment has to reframe. Correct. We're not at fault. We're not the ones <laughs> at fault. It's yeah. the establishments who were not made for us. Well, I think there's two, I'm going to add this and then we'll, we'll wrap up, I promise. Yeah. I think too, there's a fear on the agency to back up a clinician mm-hmm. that they feel like is different, right? Because then you're a liability. Talk about it. Yeah. And I think that we have to change that a little bit too, mm-hmm. because I think new clinicians have a lot of wisdom to share and their questions are very valid, right? So I think that's really important too. All right, and with that, we will wrap it up. All right, so what is our main takeaway today? What do you think our main takeaway is? I think is that um, we need to stop blaming people, or not blaming people, but... um, Pathologizing. Yeah, Yeah. imposter syndrome. You have imposter syndrome. Like, you're... (laughs) It's not a we problem. It's 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 not a you problem. It's It's a, like career it's a field problem like we yeah. all need to be addressing this yeah so if you if you find yourself experiencing imposter syndrome know that it's not you it's the establishment that was made to not include you and so how can you move forward in that environment mm-hmm. to um you know to feel more safe and accepted and included and confident confident, and confident. What you're doing. because i think a lot of times imposter syndrome really comes for people that are different thinkers like yeah. your harm reductionists and abolitionists yeah. and people that are fighting against moral injury and burnout right those are the people mm-hmm. I feel like it comes for the hardest well this system comes for the hardest <laughs> so hang in there you got yeah. this yeah and as always you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and we are always open for a conversation yay bye <laughs>